0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Gilead Gleanings uh, podcast with video elements. It's probably a term for that. (laughs) I don't know what it is. I don't really care to know what it is. Someone just told me that uh, Miriam Webster decided that irregardless is a word.
1: I'm so upset about that.
0: I knew there'd be some strong reactions in this group. Uh, well, regardless of the
2: reactions, let's carry on, David. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, this this group, by the way, is a a, a group of folks. Uh, so at First Presbyterian Church, we've encouraged and invited to people to read over the course of the summer, Gilead. It's a novel, and uh, so this is a group of folks that we've put together to sort of have a little host a little conversation about Gilead, and talk about the characters, some of the themes, ponder on on connections to our own lives our own our own world our own little uh, speck of dust and and so we're going to do that this is the second one of these and there I believe we're scheduled to do a third one in a couple of weeks as well so uh, but for now I'm going to invite us to reintroduce ourselves uh, I'm Damon I'm the associate pastor at first Presbyterian Church uh, Ann, would you like to go next
3: yes I'm Anne and I am a retired English professor from Hastings College.
0: And Constance? I'm
3: Constance,
4: and same for me. (laughs) And Jenny? I'm Jenny Welsh, and I am still teaching, um, but I have been part-time teaching for the last 10, 10 years since having kids. I have stayed at home, and so I teach as an adjunct for CCC and Bellevue in Omaha. Very
0: nice
2: and greg i'm greg but i think for the sake of this book study i will refer to myself as Boten or Boten or Bowton or boston <laughs> uh, because there's a parallel here that we need to note before we start name and this is about john ames who's a congregational pastor which you are a congregational pastor and yeah. his best buddy Boten, boughton Boten, boston is a presbyterian pastor which of course so uh from here on out i i would like to be referred to as, as that, you
1: no. <laughs> I mean, we can do that. We're
0: happy to, uh, to make those sorts of changes and uh, adjust <laughs> as we go along. So now I refrained there, um, Bowden. I'll, ha- I'll have you note from adding in, he's oftentimes referred to as poor old Bowden.
2: I, I appreciate your uh, your subtle refraining there, John Ames, Damon. Hyman.
0: Um, so yeah, we're we're continuing on in Gilead. Um, we're gonna we'll probably talk about a lot of sort of general things about the book, um, and maybe kind of more specifically some sort of things in kind of the pages eighty to one, kind of the middle third of the book, I guess. Um, and go from there. So let's just start with a, a general sorts of questions. Um, anything that sort of jumped out to you, caught your attention um, as you continue to read.
3: Okay. Well, I guess I I have a question that um, Greg's um, remarks just made me think of, and and that is at, at the time when when this novel is set and the time when he's narrating, how different would congregational and Presbyterian churches and theology have been? I mean, was this a big deal for the two of them to be friends, I guess, is part of what I'm asking.
2: I'm not an expert in this area, but uh, know enough about the history of the, of the two churches and the two church movements. Both of them draw from the same theological uh, pool if you will. Uh, and so similar to Damon being a UCC pastor serving a Presbyterian church, this would not have been unusual for a Presbyterian and a Congregationalist pastor to, to be friends. You'll notice throughout the novel, he, he re- refers to the Baptists and, and there would be a much larger divide there between a Baptists <laughs> and, uh, and the Congregationalists or Presbyterians. But even, even at the time this novel was set, the Congregationalists and Presbyterians were, uh, we're getting along pretty well um uh, both did the westward expansion about the same time we're planning churches you'll see different patterns of the presence of congregational churches and Presbyterian churches in iowa and nebraska and kansas but they, there would have been good relationships between the two both uh naming sort of calvin as the the father of their theological underpinnings Congregationalists claim a reform theology they add a few additional theologians in there but um, you know the, the sessions they had doing Hebrew and, and Greek uh, on on Reverend Ames' porch. Damon and I have those same sessions every week with our Hebrew and no, we don't, uh, but we do <laughs> we do bounce ideas off of each other, similar to how they would. Uh, and uh, so yeah, I, I, I feel I feel a a good like a pretty accurate representation of what that would have been and. And 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 some simpatico with uh, with the way that Damon and I work together today. Yeah,
3: thank you.
1: There seems also to be a pretty friendly relationship with um, the Congregationalist Church and the
2: Methodist Church in the novel. Yep, and some slight theological differences there, but the theolo- theological differences would not have in the same way that there's slight theological differences us and First United Methodist, those don't keep us from being able to do mission together and being able to mm-hmm. uh, to be the church together. And, and that would have been the same there too, I, I I would imagine. I don't know, Damon, any perspective on, as a kid who grew up in a small congregational church in Iowa?
0: Um, no, not really. I, I was thinking about, um, as as sort of the um, churches expanded westward and the denominations expanded westward, um, there were, and Greg, you can correct me if I'm wrong, there were agreements between denominations oftentimes um, in terms of how close that they would attempt to settle churches um, to one another. Um, And so if, if one denomination got to town X, then the other denomination would skip over it. And go to town, um, whatever the next letter in the alphabet is. But why? It's why. <coughs> <laughs> that sort of thing. But um, you mentioned, it, Constance, the, the appreciation of the Methodist Church. Um, if I'm remembering, that has to, part of that has to do with um, Grandpa Ames um, is off running around doing abolitionist things uh, and has come back from the civil war and his congregation is really kind of devastated by the civil war. Uh, and it's mostly just widows, um, that are a part of it. And, and during the service, he'll open up the windows and let them listen to the singing that's coming from the Methodists. Um, which sort of just this struck me as this sort of appreciation of, um, vibrancy. Yeah. I guess.
1: Uh-huh. And so is it because grandpa has encouraged his congregation to go to war that his is devastated and the Methodists are not?
2: That's a good question. Um, n- the Methodists didn't have a really strong anti-war um, beat to them any more so than other Christian churches would have. They weren't Mennonites or Quakers or anything like that. Um, the Methodists did historically have a slightly more social justice perspective. The Methodists were more involved in the abolitionist movement. Okay. Uh, and so that could have something to do with it.
0: Okay. I guess my sense of it was as much as anything else, um, Grandpa Ames just wasn't around and, right. and, and hadn't been tending To his church. He'd he'd go off during the week and he'd roll back in on the horse in time for worship on Sunday. Um, Yeah, go ahead, Jenny.
4: Well, part of what you're talking about is um, I marked it because it was one of the things, again, talking about water, which we talked about last time, because they were talking about the Methodists holding service outdoors by the river, sort of playing off the beauty of the water and whatnot. But in looking back at that, it's it's really speaking to what you all are talking about, about um, the new people and the young people were were returning to the Methodists who were holding outdoor meetings. But then it says, um, he, which is referring to the grandfather, he respected the Methodists because they had borne a great part of the burden of the war. Um, So, you know, that they had played their part. So I don't know if it was just like his absenteeism or they also talk a lot about how the building is so run down, that's the same time, right? And so the building itself is so in need of care and attention i don't know if that's what drew people away from it and they decided to go somewhere else where there was new growth and and new building um on the horizon but that's that's also the mention of the women and what they do um to try to keep that building going but how in what bad shape it really is yeah they plant flowers
1: around it but it's pretty much in shambles. Does
4: is that the church that has had a fire? Is that the one struck by lightning, or that's different?
0: Uh, no, that's uh, I think the Baptist church gets okay. struck by lightning. Um, I'm thinking like this: the conversation is <clears throat> is reminding me also of the relationship also between Grandpa Ames and his son. Um, there's there's part in there that the son talks about. Uh, Uh, something to the effect of essentially that the, the, his dad wasn't there to, to be a dad to him. Um, right. And I think that that gets reflected in the, in the condition of the church building itself.
4: Uh-huh. Yeah, it makes sense that um, current John Ames, it's really hard to know how to refer to them. <laughs> it's tough. Uh, letter writer John Ames. Um, might in a way be hung up on that because that's, I mean, that again, that's going back to his motivation for writing is that he knows he will not be there for his son as he grows. And so this, this reflection back on fathers and sons and their relationships is something that's weighing very heavily on him, I think.
1: Right.
4: Yep.
0: And and the, the church building that the narrator is currently preaching in, Uh, also seems to be, is, continues to be in a state of disrepair. Yeah, Uh, that's
4: one of those witty comments he makes about, like, he makes some sort of flip comments about meeting with the trustees, and about how he just thinks they're sort of, like, just being polite, like, you know, (laughs) they're they're really just appeasing me, but they're just going to tear it down when I'm gone.
2: Yeah, waiting for him to die, and then they're going to tear down a church building, I I thought that was an interesting, uh, and, and if, again, if we're gonna tie the, the building and the relationship between the grandfather and the father and the father and the son, I think that there probably are some parallels there to, to be drawn and and he himself, towards the end of his life, is that church building that people are just waiting to be torn down and he's trying to preserve his legacy in some way by writing this letter to uh, to his son, right?
1: Okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, and he, that, I mean,
0: that building, that's the, I mean, they've all preached in that building. Is that, do I have the correct understanding
2: on that? I, I think you're right. I think the, the grandfather started pastoring that church, and then his father and then the letter writer, John Ames, mm-hmm. all pastored like three generations of that okay. family. The grandfather went off and pastored in Kansas at the end of his life and all that stuff, but I think, I think all three of them had ministry at that particular church in Gilead, Iowa, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that building is really one of the things that, that really connects all three of those generations. Yeah. And they, I like being talked about taking the pointing out to them, to the trustees, that there, there's a rooster on top of the, there's a weather, rooster <laughs> weatherbane on top of it. And then the, once they were aware of it, he figured they were probably going to take it down. <laughs> is that a
4: thing? Is that a real thing? The roosters on top of churches? I meant to look that up before we talk today
3: you know i else? think i remember i think i remember that um from when i lived in new england you know i, th- I think i think it is although say i say i i didn't look uh-huh. up. that's just my sloppy yeah. old memory speaking
1: <laughs> excuse me i've got to go get a plug <laughs> my computer is dying
0: <laughs> oh <no. laughs> it's like john ames <laughs> <laughs> well I was um, going to say, you know, yeah.
4: with the, the building and the the letter, like Greg, kind of what you said made me think, well, he's writing to preserve his legacy as a pastor, in a way, right? But I I keep looking at it as he's writing to um parent his child after he's gone. But it's really it's not either or, it's both. It's it's and then when we tie it back to the building and this idea of what the building represents, not only for their lives as preachers but then their family it is it's just so it's so interconnected that i think you know it's easy to to follow both of those those lines of thought and, and his motivation for writing
2: yeah there there are a number of career paths where uh your job becomes your identity i think college professor is another one of those but certainly for <laughs> pastors um you can't oh,
3: yeah.
2: disassociate yeah. <clears throat> your your what you do on sunday mornings or monday monday through friday from the rest of your life because the the ministry and the call are and and the life are all intertwined like that and so yeah jenny i think you're right ultimately the letter is is to help parent his son but there's also a preservation of legacy interestingly enough for him it's it's not the legacy of the boxes of sermons in the attic right there's there's a un- that's not the legacy that he's as concerned about preserving. His wife is concerned about that legacy. That's not where he's focusing his energy and attention, which is an interesting thing. Um, Certainly. I don't know if you all have any thoughts on that.
3: Well, I um, gave a little bit of thought to that. And in a way, as, as he's writing this letter to his son, I'm sure that there are ideas and things that were in his sermons. And so, in a sense, what he's writing is like his sermons from his whole life distilled and, and, then, and then taken further. You know, and, and this also reminded me, and this is kind of, maybe kind of a tacky comment, but we have had um, faculty at Hastings College not recently, but when I first got there who had been ministers before, and who came to Hastings with attics full of sermons, and who, when they died, thought, of course, that the Hastings College Library would really want all these boxes of sermons and, of course, hymnals, thousands of hymnals. Yeah. And so I, I was, I was kind of, re, kind of reminded of that too.
2: Yeah, the difference now is it's all recorded electronically. But I, I I mean, uh, but I think there still is a sense that that's part of our legacy as pastors, right? We get up and preach forty or fifty Sundays a week, right? And you know, uh, my sermons aren't as long as John Ames's are, Uh, neither are Damon's, but uh, (laughs) but you know, fifteen hundred to two thousand words every week for 40 weeks a year times 30 years that's that's an awful lot of uh thought that goes into that and he he does reflect on that a bit but but for him that's not actually where it's at that's that's not the legacy that he's interested in 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 passing on or carrying on
4: did anyone else notice the little life lessons that he sprinkles just constantly like i think at least three or four times this is the one thing to know and then (laughs) <laughs> 10 pages later this is this is it where it's just yeah. sort of like you're saying they yeah. like, take those gems from his p- sermons and then just they just keep coming
2: and it's this stream of consciousness thing almost uh mm-hmm. where he'll be telling a story and then he'll interrupt his own story because he has a wisdom that he wants to sprinkle or mm-hmm. it reminds him of another story yeah. and, then, and then he'll circle back and, and that, that's an interesting uh interesting way to sort of get in his mind as he's writing
0: Mm-hmm. and we do we do kind of in this section of the book um, get into some more of the theological weeds um, as it were and you're talking about legacy um, so in this so old poor old Botten, Boughton however has a, has a son uh, who he's named for the narrator uh, and the sun, we kind of got started to get allusions to it last time. The sun is, was up to something, um, and was gone for a long time, and has come back. Um, and and we get in, and this sort of inspires the narrator to he goes on this, what I felt to be quite long, <laughs> uh, diatribe about the about the Ten Commandments and specifically about the the fifth commandment to honor your mother and father um, and we get a big discourse about uh, big conversation about predestination um, and what that might mean um, and, that, and I don't just wondering how that um, struck people or, or sat with people those sorts of things
1: I was aware that um, this the the arrival of Jack or even knowing that he's coming back is the one thing that really disturbs the narrator he he feels very uneasy and um it's it's almost like it's a flaw in him in a way to um judge Jack the way he does. Um, he wants not to do that, but he simply can't help it.
4: He and tries he, to resist.
1: What? Yeah.
4: Well, he, like his judgment, it takes so long. I don't know how many pages it takes to get from the first mention of Jack to why he's actually so mad at Jack. But it's a big chunk of the book, or a yes. big chunk of section of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, I, and I and I
3: and I find it 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 really interesting that Jack actually shows up right at the midpoint of the novel, um, and 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 also I mean I think there's there's some kind of funny parallelism going on there you know with the narrator and with Jack Bowton. and we're told or the narrator tells us that Jack has this preacherly manner, right. Which is almost like a parody, but of course he's anything but a preacher, you know, and as, as we um, you know find out more about him later, we'll you know certainly have have that held up. Um, and the fact that um, Jack is named for the narrator, they're, they're just all, all kinds of, of things going on there that I'm not sure exactly what they are, but they're, but they're interesting and I think they're powerful.
1: Yeah um i kept noticing all the sort of different prodigal sons in the um various characters but particularly in jack the son who's yeah. gone away and not right. done not done moral things and comes back and even calls the narrator papa um <laughs> and calls the narrator's son, little brother, um, which the narrator resents.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, I think uh, I think Jenny. I think you pointed out in our in our little notes that um, the narrator seems to sort of fear that that Jack is going to try to take over his family um, right. after he dies. <laughs> uh, did you want to say anything? more about
4: that i think that's what i noticed a lot during this section of the book is like he just he keeps like saying to his son like i i want to warn you about this but then i don't you know he's trying almost like he's trying not to say something bad about jack but then he just can't help himself and like that flaw that constance was talking about this judgment of jack that he has but with like he's we get to see the narrator observing jack with his family and how he interacts with them at the home, how he act intera- like comes in and sits with them if they're in church when he's preaching the sermon. That ends up kind of then being about Jack, that he keeps saying, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have talked about this, I wouldn't have done this sermon if I had known he was going to be there, which is really confusing until you get later on and know why what Jack did. But there's um I don't know, and I don't know. It seems like he hasn't said anything to his wife about it, but she's clearly picking up on some weird vibe that's happening here because like all of a sudden she won't look at Jack in church and she's just being cautious about how she interacts with them, with him. It's, I I don't know if John Ames current John Ames is feeling letter writer, John Ames. I'll just call him the letter writer. (laughs) Uh, If, if he's feeling insecure or if he's jealous or if he's just, mad at the fact that he knows he's dying and that you know someone likely is could replace him in his role with his wife and his son whether it's Jack or somebody else
1: yeah I feel like he is insecure about I mean these these are people he really really loves just as he also loves um botten Mm -hmm. dear old botten Um, and he doesn't want them to be corrupted or taken advantage of in any way. Um, so it becomes very personal to him. But yeah, he tries so hard not to say anything. And yet he he does admit it's an omission not to have told his wife that there was somebody who is his
3: namesake. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm imagining also But the narrator is kind of wrestling with the problem that if um, his wife and son become involved with Jack after the narrator is gone, that they could really have their hearts broken and their lives ruined by this man, you know, considering what he's done in the past. Exactly. And so, you know, I imagine that kind of figures into his thinking too.
1: Mm -hmm
0: yeah I, <clears throat> it, it strikes me that there's also a legacy component to it as well this uh, they have the same name uh, oh yeah and and I wonder if he doesn't fear that uh, the narrator doesn't fear that after he's gone uh, folks will they'll, they'll know that <laughs> that this is the person who had the same name as the person who came before It was interesting that um he described, um, so they have this conversation about predestination and he's, he decides that he's going to tell his son the, the story of Jack's story. Um, and he talks about, um, he talks about sinners and, um, and in the way that he talks about it, he describes, uh, he doesn't really have an issue with sinners so much as, uh, people who are dishonorable uh, and that dishonorable folks don't admit to what they've done and they don't really seek to make amends or to correct it. Um, and it seemed like that that's what really bothers him um, about Jack. Uh, maybe I spoiled too much for those who haven't no, read that far. Well, yet.
4: and right about the place where we ended goes into, um, again, it's sort of like the, here's the one life lesson here's the one thing that really bothers me, but then he comes and adds another thing that really bothers him about Jack, where he he says that you know, he's, he's mad because Jack chose not to be a present father, whereas that's all John Ames wanted, you know, with his first wife and child. And then now he's got that opportunity again to have the family. And he, he says that just... Um, That one man should lose his child and the next man should just squander his fatherhood as if it were nothing. Well, that does not mean that the second man has transgressed against the first. And then he says, I don't forgive him. I am struggling with this. It's just like, okay. So, you know, this, again, this sort of like, he just keeps turning this around and around as he's writing about it.
3: For sure. For sure. Um,
0: And you had mentioned that um, the narrator describes Jack Um, as being preacherly and that caught my attention while I was reading it and so I underlined it uh, what he meant what do I mean by preacherly there's a way of being formal and deferential and at the same time cordial while maintaining an air of dignified authority which is preacherly Uh, then he says that he himself has never mastered it but botten
3: (laughs) Just, just 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 stumbling into it right yeah well he was raised
1: around it so it seems to come naturally to him but it's such a misrepresentation of who he
3: is oh absolutely well but the narrator was raised around it too and right. it didn't it asked. didn't get to him yeah
0: it, it's um it struck me out that that sense of um i seem to recall earlier in the novel him sort of describing people as sort of uh, consciously sort of maintaining their separation from him um uh, because they they knew that he was the preacher and uh, and so they just they wanted to kind of maintain some sort of distance or separation and and that description sort of strikes me in that sort of same there's some sort of this little slight sort of divide um between the two which i kind of thought was interesting and he described his grandfather as being impressive in another style. in <laughs> uh, that preacherly style.
1: Um. It strikes me that this section is so much about relationships between fathers and sons. Um, both the positive side of that and the negative side. Um, we get a lot of revelation about strife in the family particularly between the narrator's father and grandfather and yet the narrator says something that i didn't notice on the first reading about um, it sort of this necessity to revere your father no matter what he's done and that seems to come through um they're they're also sorry when the grandfather leaves at the end of his life and goes to kansas and then there seems to be some kind of atonement that the father and the narrator make in going to Kansas and finding the grave. Um, There's also mention of Cain and Abel, (laughs) and um, Abel's blood crying from the ground. See, I've got a note here. Yeah, he wonders how his father could preach in a way that seems to disrespect his own father, the grandfather. Um, almost as if you need to sort of cover up for your parents, and yet, or your father and your grandfather, and yet he is revealing everything. That his grandfather is, or pretty much everything his grandfather has done. It's sort of the, the tensions between the generations.
3: Yeah, t- tensions between generations and also tensions be sort of like the irresistible force meets the immovable object with two people who have such strong senses of ethics that are diametrically opposed exactly well and i and 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 i I think of my you know anti-war generation you know and 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 our parents you know be another and of course every every generation reinvents that but but yeah you you do have that the strife between all kinds of different uh parent children father son relations in there for sure Mm
1: -hmm.
4: the difference between grandfather aims and wait, no, no, I'm confused. Father, yeah, okay, the grandfather, and he's the one who's pro-war, right?
3: Well, he's he, he he's he's pro-war because he's so anti-slavery, right? You know right. That, that, that the only the only way to get rid of slavery is war, and so we have to have war.
4: Yes, and then his, and then John Ames's father is, you know, like you were saying, yeah, I'm like diametrically opposed, and but the way we get it is through peace. I mean, you know, we have these two very polar, opposite approaches. Right. So, right. I mean, that like, that it speaks to the, they, it, it's, um, they're they're aiming for the same end, but their means to get there are just so different. It's it's very easy to see where the family would then have these these conflicts and these yeah. these problems with within within themselves. Right.
2: And, and deep, fundamentally philosophical and theological differences, which would be hard in the context of a family of preachers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that all preached
2: out of the same pulpit.
0: Right.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Sorry, right. I didn't mean to interrupt, Greg. Go ahead. No, no, no. I just, I, I think about that a lot in terms of, sure, I've got... Political and some theological differences between myself and my dad, but they're they're not vast chasms apart, right? Um, I'm not a pacifist and my dad is not a warmonger. And that's an overstatement of uh, grandfather aims and father aims, but uh, so fundamentally different views, which obviously helps you understand the tension in that home um, throughout yeah, and, and how much that must have influenced John, our narrator, right, letter writing on Ames himself, um, and how conflicted that must be. And now he's thinking about the legacy he's trying to pass on to his son. I mean, there's, there's a whole lot going on there.
4: Well, there's a bit of a fixation, too, on, I noticed in this section, several mentions of, of the grandfather and how hard his life was, and maybe that's like also how hard he lived and um, this idea there's, I should just find it. Like He's talking about, because I was still looking for the mentions of water, but I didn't see as many of them this time as last yeah. time. But he does talk about water in terms of his grandfather's struggles. And he says the waters never parted for him, not once in his life, so far as I know. Like this idea that he just was always sort of battling against, against the current, I guess, is what That metaphor is going for there. But then current letter writer, narrator, John Ames, goes into also how he himself is so sorrow driven. You know, he says that one of his skills in life is weeping with people instead of like, you know, in the laughter that you, he mentions laughter a lot here, but it's very rarely, unless it's tied to his son, actual like from mirth, like it is it's like ironic laughter and like teasing laughter. And there's this idea that he sees a lot of that, right. He sees a lot of that struggle or that disposition for sadness and sorrow, maybe in his own life. There's just a, there's a connection there to his grandfather that he seems to be exploring.
0: Yeah. That's a a connection that I hadn't made um, between those two characters before. But yeah, the narrator talks about it. So it was always a struggle for him to celebrate with, Uh, To laugh when others laugh and to cry, weep when others weep. It's a scriptural allusion there. Um, And the the weeping when others weep was always easier for him.
3: Yeah, I mean, I also, and I'm maybe bringing in people that I've known who had such a strong sense of ethics, um, like not as extreme as the grandfather, but these people also tend to do everything the hard way. And I have that impression of the grandfather, too. Even when it really wouldn't make any difference, you know, they just can't can't loosen up and relax a little. I may, I'm making that sound trivial. I don't mean to, but oh, yeah. that's an element, too. Yeah,
1: the grandfather seems to be able to... Um, Put aside his personal relationships for his principles an awful lot. I'm thinking about when he'd give away, you know, things that the family wasn't through with or, you know, leave because of a cause and leave his family to struggle. Um, Another thought I was having as we were talking about father-son relationships was um, the narrator himself seems a little uncomfortable that his son draws um, kind of war pictures, artillery or things like that. But he doesn't want to mention that because he doesn't want his son to, he doesn't want to estrange himself from his son particularly as, you know, these, he perceives that these are last moments with him.
2: Yeah, there was the, I think this might've been in the previous section, but where (laughs) if you look on the corner of the paper here, he's drawn an airplane, which he calls a, and whatever. um, And he can name off the other jets and and wants me to read the small print with what guns they're carrying and what bombs they drop and all that stuff. And, um, yeah there seems to be a discomfort with that but not enough of a discomfort to insist that his son return the book to the man who gave it to him right um, and living in that tension and it is it is probably the culmination of, of watching his his grandfather and his father struggle through these things mm-hmm. right-huh Uh and he doesn't want to leave that same legacy to his own son particularly in the waning days of his life
0: mm-hmm Um, but you mentioned the the waning days of his life, and um, as you might, we continue to get references to that. He, um, he um, and and he's at one point, he's um, sort of. This is just a little bit that I that caught my attention that I thought was funny. Um, he decides uh, to do some waltzing because he hears yeah. some music. And, um <laughs> uh, here it says I, I plan to do all my waltzing here in the study i have thought i might have a book ready at hand to clutch if i began to experience unusual pain so that it would have an especial recommendation from being found in my hands that seemed theatrical on consideration and i might have the perverse effect of burdening the book with unpleasant associations uh, and then he lists some of the some of the books that he had considered, uh, should he feel <laughs> himself slipping. That um, yeah, fun. But, yeah, that he would reach up. Now, if I were to do that, I'd want to have a volume of Calvin and Hobbes at the ready. <laughs> uh, I, I was curious uh, what books uh, or things you might want to have at the ready. Got
4: it that is a tough question I can't I can't really answer that what's your favorite book question I'm not, I'm not very good at answering
2: no. that hmm. I mean if I I'm going to channel me. if I'm going to channel Botton here you may pick Calvin and Hobbes I would pick John Calvin's Institutes well that oh. was one of his right I know that's but volume one or two uh, he was going to have volume two volume two definitely that's that's where <laughs> Calvin's thinking really evolved <laughs> And I can't say my favorite theologian, Bart, because he wrote 120 volumes, and uh, so it's not easy to pick one from Bart's dogmatics uh, out of those 120 volumes. But Calvin had kept it to just two, so.
3: <laughs>
0: well, that was
2: decent of him. <laughs> Sorry,
0: so and I continue. I know, yeah, it go ahead, a
4: book. You know the book that he's reading that his wife wanted him, that his wife read, and his wife liked, and that she read? Mm-hmm. Is that the trail of the lonesome pine? I didn't I think Google, is it real?
3: Oh, it it is. It, is. It, it, it was also made into a popular movie in the early 40s.
4: Okay. Um, yeah. that book is really that it's an interesting it features interestingly here in this section because he's reading it because she read it first and liked it. I I think, if I'm remembering that correctly. Yeah. So I think so. I read it previously. Or um, but it's it very much mirrors their situation where the wife is younger and then there's some comment made about some younger person, younger man who comes in than the husband like, oh, well, that would be more suitable for your age sort of thing. And, but then she ends up loving him anyway and for all time. And so John Ames is like, oh, this, this is a good book. And you know, it's like, he's taking it as his message to himself from his wife that even when you die, I'm not going to replace you. I'm, I'm going to love you and only you
3: well and and as i um and i'm not as far in my in my rereading as as you are but but as i remember at um at the end of, of lonesome pine there's there's also um the resolution of a feud mm-hmm. and in a sense there's a there's kind of a feud among the generations you know in the in, in the novel and so there there's some kind of parallel there too i think
0: yeah. Yeah. Um I, we should probably start to draw our, our little conversation to a close as you are sort of maybe looking forward to the to the last third of the book are there questions that are circling around for you are there um, things that you uh, want to find out more about are there curiosities remaining for you
1: Well, I've finished and I'm rereading, but um, uh, this uh, this might be a spoiler, so maybe I shouldn't ask it.
0: <laughs> well, I'll plug our ears.
1: Okay, <laughs> no, that's all right. <laughs> um, Jack has come back to ask. Well, this is current in where we are. Jack has come back to ask. <sighs> kind of to explore whether or not he could bring his um, common law wife and child back to Gilead. How might this be received? Am I jumping ahead?
4: I'm not to that part yet, but. Oh, okay. Okay. That's fine.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's clearly up to something, right? Mm-hmm. Cause he, specifically engages the two preachers in a conversation about predestination and whether someone is always doomed to their fate or not Mm -hmm. Um, yeah so interesting Uh, other other themes or things that folks are hoping to maybe explore get explored a little bit more
3: well i'm i'm continuing to to look at all the different times we have baseball in the novel, and and that keeps coming up. Now it's they mention um, you know the Yankees, and they're always going outside and playing catch, and and that kind of thing. But 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 anything that keeps turning up in a novel, I think is is worth is is worth thinking about. So, um, okay, and and I guess I would I would add, and this is. Something that Dwight Marsh said to me once uh, that I think it was kind of off the cuff, but I thought it was really brilliant. And he said that when when you're reading something, um, like like something unfamiliar, the three things to notice, and of course these these would all be speculation, but what repeats, what does the title mean, and who learns something? And I think those are certainly um, productive questions for this book.
0: Yeah, that's very helpful. Mm -hmm. Any other things that we're wondering about or looking forward to?
4: I'm still looking for water references. I didn't see as many in this section as the first. We'll see what the third brings. And then in this section I did, I noticed more mentions of laughter, um, but not really like happy-go-lucky laughter. And so I'm wondering as the letter and life, I'm assuming, draw closer to the end in the end of the book, like how those things feature.
2: Greg? You know, it's it feels like he's trying not to repeat the mistakes of his grandfather and father, but because he swam in that water for so long, it's so deeply embedded in him that it's coming out in his writing. And, and so while he's trying not to pass that legacy on to his son through his writing, he ultimately is passing that. It's this notion of, I don't want to call it like generational trauma, but just the, the things that we learn, uh, tend to be the things that we pass on. And even if he's trying to avoid doing that, he's doing it anyway. (laughs) And so it's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out as well. Right. Yeah. Um, this is, I think connected Jenny to sort of what
0: you were talking about i'm i'm curious about how you end a letter like this mm-hmm. um like oh, I, just if you were writing a letter like this at what point would you think okay i'm satisfied i've said enough about myself or or whatever the case may be i don't know how you wouldn't just try to keep writing but, mm-hmm. um so those are some of the some of our some of our thoughts, some of our reflections, some of our noticings and musings um, on Gilead so far, a novel by Marilyn Robinson. Uh, we do have another sort of open Zoom chat coming up next week on Thursday. Uh, someone will tell me what date that is in a little bit at 6:30. PM. Um, it's not too late for folks to sign up and join in on those, and just let the church office know, and and we'll go from there. So that'll be next week, and then the week after that, we'll have another one of these little podcast with video element sorts of things. So, uh, but uh, I think it's safe to say that we are all enjoying our read through Gilead, and we hope that everyone else is enjoying their read through as well. So uh, until next time, toodaloo.
3: Toodaloo. Bye-bye.